0: Welcome to the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy Podcast, for another example of astronomy misconceptions, mistakes, half-truths, and conspiracies. My name is Stuart Robbins, and this is Episode 8 for the second half of October 2011. Before I start with the topic du jour, I wanted to briefly talk about one piece of feedback I've gotten from a lot of people, and that's about the length of the episodes. For some reason that I still don't quite understand, people like to listen to me. They want longer episodes. You may have noticed that the episodes have steadily been getting longer. This hasn't been by design, it's just the length of time it's taken to cover the topic. It's like when a teacher says write a paper and everyone asks how long does it have to be and the teacher says long enough to cover the topic. That's sort of what the episodes have been like. My goal with this podcast is to cover a single Bite sized topic, one per episode, and when I initially started, I thought that would take about 10 to 20 minutes. Some are taking longer. Today is an example of a longer episode. I'm not making any promises for the future, but I did want to let you know that my goal right now is to promise what I can instead of over promising and under delivering. If you have strong feelings either way in terms of the length of the episodes or the number of episodes per month or per week or whatever, please feel free to send feedback about it. With that said, the topic I'm going to talk about today is the Hollow Earth. I want to tell you a little bit about Admiral
1: Richard Byrd of the United States Navy. Flew to the North Pole in 1926 and over the South Pole in 1929. Apparently in his diary, and I say apparently because nobody really knows for sure, he tells of entering the hollow interior of the earth along with others and traveling 17 miles over mountains, lakes, rivers, green vegetation, and animal life. He tells of seeing tremendous animals resembling the mammoths of antiquity moving through the brush, and he eventually found Cities and a thriving civilization. The external temperature was 74 degrees Fahrenheit. His airplane was greeted by flying machines of a type that he never saw before. They escorted him to a safe landing where he met other humans in the center of the earth. It's an incredible story.
0: An incredible story it is, and the actual history into the idea of a hollow earth goes back at least several centuries. Of course, one piece of ironclad evidence comes from the Christian Bible, in which people have found passages that say indicates earth is hollow. I think this interpretation came after people found passages indicating it was flat. Moving on, one of the first Actual science people who thought Earth was hollow was the fairly famous astronomer Edmund Haley. That's the guy that has that comet named after him. In 1692, Haley proposed several shells around a solid center was what the interior structure looked like. His reasoning was that by this point in time, we knew Earth's magnetic field changed over time, and it changed over the course of actual human timescales, More on that on a future episode. So he proposed that each interior shell had its own magnetic field, and they were all moving independently. Where they overlapped and added or subtracted was what made the surface field change. For the time, this was not an unreasonable idea, because we really didn't know much about anything in terms of planet formation, magnetic fields, how much Earth weighed, tectonic theory... Earthquake theory, plate tectonics, or anything else. The next major contributor, major name that comes up, is that of John Cleves Sims Jr., who was an American Army officer around 1800. No science training. But he believed Earth was a hollow shell about 1300 kilometers thick with holes 2300 kilometers across at the poles, and there were more shells inside. Sims, somehow, was one of the most famous of the early proponents, convincing even U.S. President John Quincy Adams to let him mount an expedition in search of the opening at the North Pole. Unfortunately for him, Adams was out of office by the time the funds would have arrived, and the next president didn't agree. Since then, there have been many others who have proposed the idea, perhaps fueled by French authors Jules Verne's A Journey to the Center of the Earth, that's the english title written in 1864 and released in english in 1871 i actually read that book when i was younger though i was fairly disappointed spoiler they didn't actually make it to the center anyway the idea has persisted in movies comics books and ideas just the general idea of the world for well over a century and a half now although most take it in stride as fiction, much like most don't believe Harry Potter was a leak by J.K. Rowling permitted by the Illuminati to start acclimating us to the idea for their big reveal later on. But, some do. This podcast is about them, or at least some of them. It's also about Earth, not the other planets. That might be a future episode, because many of these people actually believe that it's not just Earth, but all planets and large moons that are also hollow. First, I'm going to talk about Sim's idea of there being a hole at the poles and some modern ideas about that.
2: It's also uh, reported by many that if there is a society that lives in there that they protect that hole, that they actually have a a way of masking it with a mirage. Well, how, how big
1: do you think the opening is?
2: Well, a couple of our historians say it could be as small as 80 miles across or as large as 500 miles across.
1: How do you mask something like that, Brooks?
2: Well, when you're flying at, uh, at 30 or 40,000 feet over it or, as our satellites do, about 240 miles, it's pretty easy to mask. Uh, not many aircraft fly low altitude over that area. Now, we do have some photographs from some ice-based expeditions that happened several years ago and they were scheduled to traverse this area where we're getting ready to go but they stopped about six miles short because they saw a mountain range and they decided that the mountain range would have been too treacherous that the ice in front of it might have been full of caverns and so they turned around and came back we have ground photographs of these men standing with the mountain range in the background the problem is there's no mountain range there it doesn't exist, but it sure shows up in the photograph.
1: Maybe, in a, maybe like a hologram or something like that. Well, that's what we're thinking. Yeah. Well, that in any would case, be an interesting but... way to mask it, wouldn't
0: it? The main person talking in that coast-to-coast Coast AM clip was Brooks Agnew, someone that I first mentioned in my special episode on Comet Elenin, episode four. For background on Agnew, no relation to the former vice president, he's. Really, been saying for at least the last five years that he's going on this expedition to the North Pole to find his opening. Still hasn't happened over five years later. Originally, it was also going to be free, paid for by the television producers that he was sure he'd have lined up. Now it's over $20,000 a ticket. Anyway, there's really not too much to say about Agnew's claim of a hole. It's not there. And his idea that flying in an airplane makes you not able to see something that's a minimum of 80 kilometers across, or over two times the size of Manhattan, is kind of ignorant. The Russians back in 2007 put their flag on the ocean floor at the North Pole. We have pretty good satellite coverage of the North and South Poles dating back many, many years in order to monitor climate change, and there's no hole. It's just not there. But maybe that's because satellites don't have a consciousness.
2: What we plan to do is to get the boat near where this opening might be, and I'm going to tell you a little story about how we're going to determine that. Sure. And then we're going to wait and see if we can get, and I know this is a a very strange experimental condition, but we're going to try to get the consciousness of this boat to a high enough level that if there is an intelligent component that lives in the interior of the Earth, they will come out and meet us. And when they do, we're going to get it on film.
0: That's incredible. Yes, George, it's incredible. And it's also not true. Now, one of the only forms of actual observational evidence that pretty much all Earth proponents point to is earthquake data.
3: I studied earthquakes and how... Uh, the scientists say that uh, whenever there's a large earthquake, it causes the earth to ring like a bell. And a bell is hollow. And and then on the other side of the earth from the epicenter, there's this shadow zone where the earthquakes don't arrive. Now there's two kinds of earthquakes. There's the S waves that uh, shake like a rope when you shake it. Mm-hmm. And then there's the P waves that are like uh, or compression waves like uh, sound waves are. And so, there. But both kinds of, of waves have a shadow zone on the opposite side of the Earth from the epicenter. The, the S waves, scientists uh, claim that they don't go through the center of the Earth because it's uh, molten. But they, they also wouldn't go through if it was hollow. So uh, it, it's con- consistent with the hollow Earth theory. Is consistent with the of the observations. Of
0: earthquakes. Everything that Rodney Clough just said is sort of true, except for the part about Earth being hollow. There are two types of waves generated from earthquakes that travel through the planet. These are called body waves. The first type of body wave is called the P wave, where P can be thought of as pressure, although the P actually stands for primary. These are the waves that arrive first, And they travel like a shock wave through the material compressing it in front and rarefying it behind the wave the second type is the aptly named s wave where s stands for secondary can also be thought of as shear s waves are transverse in nature much like cracking a whip or waving a rope a good way to visualize these is with a slinky And anyone who's listening who's younger than 25, please let me know if slinkies are still cool when you were a kid. Anyway, take a slinky and put it on a flat surface so that one end is next to you and the other is away from you. Anchor down the other end so that the slinky is somewhat stretched out. Now move your hand holding the end near you back and forth so that it's an S wave. If you pull it towards you and push it away from you and you keep that motion going, That's the P-wave. What's interesting about waves is that they'll travel in a straight line if the density of the material that it's traveling in is the same. Earth isn't. It has density differences and temperature differences and composition differences, and all of these alter how the waves travel. The effect is that they'll arc back to the surface as they go through a layer of Earth, and they can also have a sharp bend in the direction that they're going when they pass through a boundary, like the transition from the crust to the mantle. They can also reflect off of these boundaries. What's key to this point that Rodney Clough misinterprets is that besides earthquakes being used to show that Earth has a solid structure, it's the S-waves, the shear waves or second waves, that can't travel through a liquid, but P-waves can. So the S-waves can't travel through the molten outer core of the planet, but P-waves can and do. But they wouldn't be able to travel through air. So this is actually evidence that Earth is not hollow. This is related to, but different from, earthquake shadow zones. The shadow zone for S-waves covers about 40% of the planet centered on the opposite side from where the earthquake originates. That's because the quakes can't travel through the outer molten core, but they do bend a little as they travel, and the core isn't the entire planet, and so it's not 50% of the planet that's blocked. The shadow zone for P waves is more complicated, and that's due more to the refraction, or bending, as they travel through the different densities of Earth. So earthquakes are actually a very good way to figure out that Earth is not hollow. And geoseismologists are actually able to create a pretty good map of the structure, temperature, and composition of Earth's interior through seismology data spanning over a 100 years from nearly everywhere on the planet. There's one more Hollow Earth claim that I want to go over in this episode. Kevin and Matthew Taylor, a father and son team from the land Down Under, Down Under is in Australia, not inside Earth, have an interesting idea about how Earth formed its hollowness inside.
4: When people talk about a planet and its structure, they, they, they assume that all the mass of the planet is being attracted and compresses down to the center. But um, there's a few things that um, that aren't really taken into consideration that, that we've discovered. Um, one of the first things is that the, the actual growing of a planet is is one thing that, that um, has not really been fully realized. So, for example... Um, when, when a planet is very small, it has a small mass, and matter that's attracted to a planet that's only small will only come down and, and, and be pulled onto the planet with a small amount of attraction. And as the planet gets larger, what actually happens is the mass of the planet gets larger, and so the material that comes to join the planet actually gets attracted with a lot stronger force. And effectively what's happening, this is in creating a planet that is more externally dense, that is dense on the outside rather than dense in the centre. So effectively, as a planet grows, it becomes more dense and more dense on the outside as it gets as it gets bigger, and the centre stays loosely compressed. And this is the first stage of a planet forming. There there are many other things as well that we've discovered. Um, that is, as matter comes and joins the planet, and, and then it gets buried by subsequent matter that comes afterwards. This this original matter actually starts to lose weight, and when when matter actually loses weight, it it actually uh, has no longer got the the power to compress matter at a to a greater level of compression below it. So now those this... two, yeah, those two processes happening together actually form an externally dense planet.
0: This is an intriguing idea, but it lacks much basis in reality. When planets form, yes, they accrete or they gather material. Material is drawn to a forming planet due to its growing gravitational pull gravity works by pulling things together, not apart. As more and more material piles on, gravity pulls it down, together, as in not making a top surface that's denser, and so has more gravity that starts pulling things from the center outward. This is really fairly basic physics that they just get wrong. And by basic, I mean high school-level physics, or at the very least, introductory physics 101 in college. But they don't seem to understand that because they also claim. The thing
5: that amazed me most was how simple the answer was, how everything connected together so simply, whereas all. The mathematical equations and theories um, put out by science were so, so complex and h- so hard to understand that you couldn't even debate them. The, the truth was so simple, so straightforward, and that is what everyone says to us all the time that has bought the book. This is so simple and it's so obvious that often when when a solution becomes more complicated than the problem itself, it's time to have another look. So the network of way every single thing fitted together, and we found nothing that didn't fit with this, and we were looking.
0: That's actually a fairly good transition into the second half of this episode, because there are at least four completely independent ways to show that Earth is, in fact, not hollow. Where by independent, I mean... You're not just debunking some crazy claim, you're actually doing real science trying to figure out what structure of Earth is. The first is earthquake data, which I touched on earlier, so I'm not going to discuss now, but it definitely deserves enumeration in this list and is the first one. My favorite is the second, which is somewhat, I think, the easiest method to understand because it deals with basic density. To calculate the density of an object, you need to know its volume, its mass, and then you divide mass by volume. Fairly straightforward. We've known Earth's volume, assuming that it's a sphere, for over 2,000 years. Yes, we've known that Earth is round and had a good estimate for its radius since the days of Eratosthenes, 2,200 years ago. It wasn't Columbus that proved that Earth was round. We knew it a long time ago. But I digress. How do you know how much something weighs when you're standing on it? It's like trying to weigh your bathroom scale with itself, which doesn't really work. The theoretical idea came from that scientist's of scientists, Isaac Newton, with his theory of gravity that states that the gravitational force between two objects is the product of the two masses divided by the square of the distance. Fairly straightforward problem is that there's also that nasty gravitational constant, or big G as we like to call it in physics, that you have to multiply all of that by. It was with Newton's theory of gravity that we got Newton's form of Kepler's third law. This Kepler guy seems to come up a lot in my podcast. Kepler's third law, or simply K3 as we often abbreviate it, is that the square of the time it takes an object to orbit something is proportional to the cube of the distance it orbits. p squared proportional to a cubed. Newton's form of k3 is more complicated. Divide both sides by a cubed of the proportion, and you have the period squared over the distance cubed is proportional to 1. Newton got rid of that proportion and figured out exactly what it's equal to. 4 pi squared over mg, where m is the more massive object's mass, and g is, again, that big G, the gravitational constant. Now, I've spit out a lot of equations, and it's hard to follow equations when you're not familiar with them and you're just listening to them. Remember, the point is that we want to know how much mass is in Earth so that we can get its density. We have equations that could give us the mass of Earth if we know how fast something orbits around it and how far away it is. The obvious choice, the Moon. We've known how far away it is for centuries, and we've known how long it takes to orbit Earth for as long as humans have had sight. The only thing missing is Big G. One of the problems is that gravity is by far the weakest of all forces in our dimensional space. It took until 1798, in an experiment conducted by Lord Cavendish before we had any sort of measurement of its value. It's actually still the least well-known value in all physics constants today, measured down only to four decimal points with uncertainty on the order of the last two. Anyway, once we had an idea for how big Big G was, we could then do the math and figure out how massive Earth is. It's a lot. We have its mass we have its volume, known by 1800 well over 200 years ago. Simple division shows that Earth's density averages about 5.5 grams per cubic centimeter. For reference, water is 1. It's actually defined as 1, or rather grams and centimeters are defined from the density of water. A density of 5.5 is actually fairly high, It's the densest of all the planets, with only Mercury coming close and then Venus in at a close third. We know that there's a bunch of water on Earth. We can measure the density of rocks on the surface and the ocean floor. The surface density is about 2.7 grams of continental crust, and the crust of the ocean is about 2.9 to 3.3. So we know that deep down there must be some stuff that's much denser in order to make the average value 5.5. We think it's a combination of nickel and iron, fairly heavy and dense metals. Now let's get to the point. What would the density be if Earth were hollow? Yes, for those of you who forgot, that's the point of the second of four points that was for why Earth can't be hollow in this episode about the hollow Earth. None of the people I've read nor listened to actually have an estimate that they agree on for the thickness of the shell, but they all do agree it's hollow and air on the inside. Estimates I've heard for the thickness of the shell range from 300 kilometers to 1,400 kilometers. That's a factor of almost five difference. Basic geometry allows for the calculation of the volume of a shell, and then we can just calculate the density again. Doing the math, and I'll put a link to the math in the show notes, gives us a density ranging from 10.5 to 40.9 grams per cubic centimeter for what the average density of that shell would have to be. Remember, the density for the crust that makes up the oceans is roughly 3. Iron is 7.9. Silicon, which makes up a lot of Earth, is 2.3. The densest natural elements are iridium and osmium, which are about 22.6. So the absolute densest material is only half the density required under the thinnest shell model. The thickest would still require huge deposits of these ultra-heavy elements, even though we know that they make up a fairly small fraction of Earth, which is why they're called rare-earth elements. So in order for Earth to be hollow, we need to throw out gravity and Kepler's third law, or make up some special reason why they don't apply here. The reason they exist, the reason gravity, the theory of gravity, and Kepler's third law, and all of these other physical notions exist is because they work, and they accurately explain the observations, at least all the other observations. So at this point, what's more likely? that everything else is wrong so that Earth can be hollow, or Earth isn't hollow. It's a fairly simple argument, and I think one of the best, to show why the Earth can't be hollow with this idea of density. And again, I'll post a PDF summary of the math in the show notes. Now the next two independent evidences as to why Earth is not hollow, I'll go into less detail. First is volcanoes, or actually third. The current models, which are fully supported by field geology, mineralogy, theory, and earthquake data, are that we have two basic types of volcanism on Earth. Hotspot volcanism, which is like the Hawaiian volcanoes, and volcanism based on tectonic plates moving. It's the latter that wouldn't work in a hollow Earth model. Actually, neither would really work, but it's the latter that I'm going to discuss. The plate type of volcanism is where one tectonic plate dives under another. This is called subduction. The subducting plate travels hundreds to thousands of kilometers beneath the other plate, into the upper mantle, where temperatures are much higher and it melts. Hot rock is less dense than cold rock, and it rises and erupts as a volcano. Now I realize this is a grossly simplified model, But it works for this, and it sort of makes up for the detail I went into into the densities of Earth. The problem is that this wouldn't work with a hollow Earth. The subducting plate wouldn't be able to go down enough to heat up in order to create volcanoes. And earthquake data actually map out the boundary of subducting plates. So we know that these plates travel at least a few hundred kilometers down. This is as opposed to Kevin and Matthew Taylor, who put the thickness of the crust of Earth, or not the crust, but the actual shell, at 300 to 500 kilometers. They are wrong. The fourth independent method is that of the moment of inertia. Now this is last, because it's fairly complicated and a difficult one to understand, especially if you're not a physicist. I actually had to go back and look at my classical mechanics textbook in order to read up on it. Moment of inertia, like many things in physics, is defined by equations. Put into words, the basic idea is that the moment of inertia is an object's resistant to changes in its motion. For rotational moments of inertia, like, say, a spinning earth, it's the resistance to a change in its spin. For physicists who are in the audience who are now yelling at me, I realize this is not an exact definition. But it works at a conceptual level to get the idea across, and it explains it 99% of the time. And I'm not going into tensor math in this podcast. The moment of inertia for many different things can be derived mathematically, again through tensor math, which I'm not getting into, and we can also measure them in a lab. A rod has a certain moment of inertia. A disk has a different one. A cylindrical shell has a different one from a thick cylinder, which is different from a solid cylinder. And importantly for whether or not Earth is hollow, the moment of inertia for a thin shell sphere is different from the moment of inertia of a thick-shelled sphere, which is different from the moment of inertia for a solid sphere. The theoretical values are for a uniform mass distribution. So, there are subtle variations depending upon distribution of mass and the exact amount of ellipticity of the sphere and all these other things. In physics, we assume cows are spheres, so we can assume Earth is a sphere. The moment of inertia for a hollow spherical shell is two-thirds mR squared. For a solid sphere, it's two-fifths mR squared, 60% less. So this is fairly different. Since the mr-squared term is present in almost all formulations for moment of inertia, it's usually expressed for spheres in terms of inertia divided by mr-squared. m is the mass, r is the radius. So it basically normalizes the moment of inertia in terms of mass and radius. In those terms, all that's left is the two-thirds for a shell, or two-fifths for a solid sphere. When you do this math, and you experimentally measure Earth's moment of inertia, you get a value of 0.3308. That's really close to a solid sphere, which is 0.4 versus 0.3308. When you compare that to a thick-shelled sphere, which has a moment of inertia of 0.66666, that's much closer to a solid sphere than a hollow sphere. Now, the reason that it's not exactly 0.4 is, again, because we have differences in density and temperature and material. It's not a perfectly homogenous solid sphere. We're also not a perfect sphere. We bulge a bit in various places, such as the equator being 14 kilometers bigger in radius than the poles. So it's still really, really close to a solid sphere. In comparison with Earth, the moon's moment of inertia is 0.4. 3.94, very close to a solid sphere. Going to Jupiter, just for fun, the moment of inertia is actually much less, 0.254. The reason is that the density differences throughout Jupiter are significantly larger than Earth's and so this affects the value. The bottom line is that Earth's moment of inertia is very consistent with a solid sphere, but it's very different from what it should be if it were hollow. But in the end, I suppose that may not matter, because, after all, all of modern science is built on a shaky foundation, or at least that's what pseudoscientists like to claim.
5: A few hundred years ago, everyone in the whole world thought the Earth was flat, and the whole world was wrong, right? Now, then they
1: And they, also, they where... also thought the sun revolved around the Earth.
5: Yes. That's right. Yeah. Uh, all sorts of funny things, the oceans are... Running. But then, once they realised the Earth was round and it was proven, there was a sudden surgence of interest and the solid, compressed Earth theory came into being. Everything pointed to the centre of the Earth when it go, when it's dropped. And as an assumption was made without proper investigation using primitive science. Like like some occult, I suppose, in a kind of a way, that stuck with us for generations. And now science has, has built other theories on top of that. It's like building a skyscraper on, on shaky foundations. Now we've confronted with so many mysteries because of this. This is the one place where man's made a mistake. And I believe this calculation of the earth being uh, compressed and solid is going to be our greatest miscalculation in human history. We've missed the most exciting thing about our planet. And this is what we go into into great depth in our book, The Land of No Horizon*.
0: It's time for The Puzzler, where each episode I ask a critical thinking question based loosely on the material discussed in the main segment. The scenario last time was this. An astrologer claims Venus will make a rare planetary loop above the Orion constellation. What's she talking about? Congratulations to Nigel St. Whitehall on my blog for being the first of several to post there on the SGU boards or to send me an email as to the correct solution. I've reached new heights of participation in the puzzler, almost getting up to five participants in a single one. The solution is somewhat abstract, and I wasn't actually sure if anyone would get this. The concept is that of retrograde and prograde motion. Planets generally travel west to east relative to the stars in what's called retrograde because it goes against the normal way that celestial objects move. But due to the way that orbits work out when viewed from Earth, there are times when the planets appear to stop in the sky and change directions, moving with the stars, east to west. This is called prograde motion. It's this switching of directions that the astrologer in question was referring to. It's also not that rare that Venus switches direction, But since constellations occupy a relatively small part of the sky, switching from retrograde to prograde or vice versa when it's in Orion isn't that common. This week, with the main segment on the Hollow Earth, the puzzler deals with one of the earlier ideas for how Hollow Earth quote-unquote theory in How the Hollow Formed. I think this is one that's going to be more difficult than last week's. Hopefully someone actually gets the right answer because I'm not entirely sure of what it is myself. I'll need to do my own homework. The scenario is that Earth was rapidly rotating when it formed, and that it rotated or spun so quickly that the material inside was flung out, making the hollow shells and you get a spherical cavity inside. The puzzler question is, let's say that you do have a solid shell that's going to stay the same size, but that that shell is filled with a compressible material inside of it. You're able to rotate this shell very quickly about an axis through it. First, does a cavity form? And if it does, what kind of shape would that cavity take on, and why? Try to figure out the answer and send it to puzzler at sjrdesign.net. I'll discuss the solution, hopefully, during the next episode. The feedback at the beginning was really the main piece I wanted to go over, so again, feel free to send in comments as to episode length and episode frequency. I'll take it under advisement, but my schedule will pretty much dictate what actually ends up happening. Also, there are no announcements for the next two weeks. That wraps up this topic for the 8th edition of the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy Podcast. Thank you for listening, and I hope that you enjoyed it and learned a little at the same time. For more information about this podcast, please visit the website at podcast.sjrdesign.net. If you have any feedback, please use the feedback form on the website. Send an email to podcast at sjrdesign.net or leave a comment on the page for this episode on the website. I read every email, and appreciate the feedback. If you have suggestions for topics, please feel free to make them. If you like this podcast, please write a review and rate it on iTunes. Also tell your friends.